The Movements is a leftist history and politics podcast. There's no such thing as neutral history, but I've done my best to be fair and use reputable sources. So go ahead, condemn me. No importa. La historia me observará. With that, I bring you The Guatemalan and Cuban Revolutions, Part 1 The Latin Spring. The city of Esquipulas is located in Guatemala, near the borders of Honduras and El Salvador. There stands an impressive statue known as Cristo Negro, the most famous of the Black Christ statues of Latin America. The image of Jesus on the crucifix was carved from wood towards the end of the 1500s. Over the centuries, the wood turned black, giving the image an air of miracle and establishing it as a symbol for Catholics worldwide. The statue now stands in the Esquipulas Cathedral, where Catholic pilgrims and tourists gather to approach the Holy Christ, then walk away backwards so as to not turn their backs on the holy image. I visited Esquipulas during my third visit to Guatemala in 2007. My parents grew up in Guatemala, with much of our family leaving the country before I was born. To my delight, I came across several necklaces bearing the image of what looked like a Star of David. Upon seeing the statue, I was impressed enough. However, no one had bothered to instruct me not to turn my back on the statue. I'd luckily noticed the others walking away backwards and avoided a potentially awkward situation. Perhaps nothing would have happened beyond a stink eye, but as I'd recently rejected Christ as my Lord and Savior, in favor of my own brand of agnostic semi-observant Judaism, I didn't want to find out. Later, I would learn that Esquipulas had once served as the home base for Castillo Armas, the Guatemalan lieutenant colonel turned insurgent leader of an undisciplined, poorly armed, and tiny invasion force of right-wing mercenaries backed by Honduras and the United States. They invaded Guatemala in 1954, bolstered by radio broadcasts, claiming mass defections from the government of President Jacobo Arbenz. In reality, the invasion force had few accomplishments to back their claims, which were broadcast throughout Guatemala by radio from within the U.S. Embassy. The Guatemalan military won every direct engagement with Armas's rebels. And yet, as laughable as the military threat was, Arbenz was losing the propaganda war, his days numbered. A decade after the Guatemalan Revolution of 1944, the country was a hotbed of democratic politics, radical reforms, coup plots, and conspiracy. The political atmosphere attracted dissidents from throughout Latin America, on Christmas Eve, 1953, half a year prior to the coup against President Arbenz, an Argentinian named Ernesto Guevara arrived in Guatemala, eager to participate in the Guatemalan Revolution and offer his skills as a young medical doctor. Ernesto had fallen in with members of the 26th of July movement, a Cuban organization founded by Fidel Castro to overthrow Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista. Ernesto was informed that his foreign medical degree would not permit him to practice medicine for at least a year. The unemployed doctor earned his living as a photographer, but soon joined the Cuban exiles in their latest scheme, selling tchotchkes on the streets of Guatemala City. Their most popular product, glass frames containing small portraits of the Black Christ, fitted with a cheap light bulb to illuminate the image. In a letter to his mother, an amused Ernesto writes, 
I am selling a precarious image of the Lord Esquipulas, a black Christ who makes amazing miracles. I have a rich list of anecdotes of the Christ's miracles, and I am constantly making up new ones to see if they will sell. It was here, on the eve of the coup that would shake the whole of Latin America, that the Cuban revolutionaries would give Ernesto his most famous name, El Che Argentino. The period in Guatemala between 1944 and 1954 is known as the Diez Años de Primavera, or the Ten Years of Spring. Its early years coincided with a wave of democratization across Latin America and the Caribbean. Prior to the October Revolution in Guatemala, only a quarter of Latin American nations could be generously called democracies. By 1946, only a quarter remained dictatorships. The following year, however, the Latin American right wing went on the offensive. Greg Grandin, author of The Last Colonial Massacre and editor of The Guatemala Reader, writes, 1947 marked the beginning of a continent-wide reaction. In Peru and Venezuela, military coups overthrew elected governments. In Chile, President Videla carried out a violent assault against striking workers and his erstwhile communist allies destroying a Popular Front coalition that had elected three presidents since 1938. Reform parties lost their dynamism. Unions purged militants from their ranks, while labor federations either fractured or came under government control. By 1954, dictators once again ruled a majority of Latin American countries. The coup in Guatemala effectively killed one of the most exciting and robust reform movements in Latin America's history. 1954 galvanized the Latin American left, not least of whom were Cubans, who would soon adopt the slogan, Cuba will not be Guatemala. Latin America is not an easy region to understand, and possibly harder to define. It comprises over 20 countries, hundreds of ethnicities and languages, waves of immigration from Palestine to Japan, and thousands of years of history. For the purposes of this podcast, I'll be focusing on countries originally colonized by the Spanish and Portuguese, primarily Guatemala and Cuba. Future episodes will touch briefly on countries such as Chile, Brazil, and Venezuela. But I would be remiss for not mentioning former British or French colonies, such as Haiti, whose successful slave revolt turned revolution deserves a podcast series all its own. Throughout Latin America, indigenous civilizations existed for thousands of years prior to the arrival of the Europeans. Like many regions, these civilizations experienced periods of expansion and economic development, followed by decline as new civilizations rose elsewhere. The Incan Empire, comprising much of modern-day Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Argentina, Colombia, and Chile had already developed mathematics, complex administration, and even brain surgery by the time the Spanish arrived. Some regions were populated by smaller clusters of communities and distinct cultures, such as the numerous peoples of Mayan descent who lived throughout Central America. Whether living under a larger empire or local autonomy, the peoples of the Americas resembled their North American counterparts in one key aspect. They were as diverse and complex as any other peoples, speaking hundreds of different languages with as many different cultures. 
They were neither the noble savages nor the subhumans in the imaginations of Europeans. Without mythologizing the indigenous peoples of Latin America, we can appreciate the right of all peoples to be imperfect, flawed, deeply human. The arrival of Europeans towards the close of the 15th century proved devastating. They came seeking gold and eventually expanded into other commodities of the New World. The colonies were established to facilitate the trade of natural resources using slave labor, indigenous and black servitude alike. The extent to which Europeans conducted themselves with brutality has seen several attempts at historical revision in modern times. The myth of Columbus discovering America faced new scholarship, whose study of contemporary records lay bare the brutality of conquest. Defenders of the myth counter that Columbus and other conquistadors were a product of the times, that the indigenous peoples of the Americas engaged in warfare against each other, or even that the violence couldn't be classified as genocide due to the factor of disease in reducing the population. None of this pseudo-history aligns with the record. Contemporary accounts of Spanish friars indicate shock and distress at the enslavement and murder of the indigenous peoples. Objections to the treatment of the people, then known as Indians, were strong enough to compel the Spanish crown to issue laws in 1542, declaring Indians as vassals of the crown, restricting the power of individual Spanish colonists over the indigenous. They were granted legal protections and limited autonomy, but this authority was difficult to enforce on the ground. The protests of friars and bishops were largely ignored by the conquistadors. Appealing to the King of Spain, Bishop Francisco Marroquin writes, It's very necessary that there not be Indian slaves. Children under the age of 14 should not be submitted to forced labor for any reason. The Indians must not be made to excavate gold, except in the dry season. In April, the rains begin, and the Indians begin their planting. It is a very convenient time for them to be in their houses, so they can recuperate and procreate. The Indians should not be used to carry cargo in any way, on any route, since this offends God. There are plenty of horses, oxen, and carts for hire. Not one, not even the bishop, the president, a visitor, or another private person should be so bold as to take anything from the Indians, not even a feather. Two royal judges should always travel through the land and help mitigate conflicts. Thus began the complicated relationship between the Catholic Church and the indigenous people they simultaneously sought to protect, but also to eradicate as a culture. While their motivations for protecting the Indian weren't always altruistic, and the ultimate goal remained conversion, the words of Bishop Francisco Marroquin are a testament that even by the standards of the time, the treatment of the indigenous was considered horrific. In regards to population decline, revisionists have claimed that the conquistadors couldn't be blamed for genocide, as the data available indicates that much of the population decline was due to disease. However, the role of disease has been greatly exaggerated. While it's true that indigenous populations were devastated in numbers comparable to the European Black Death, the decline in population occurred over a long period of time stretching well over a century. During this time, the indigenous were frequently relocated, forced into unsanitary cramped quarters, torn away from their established living patterns, 
and forced into labor that vastly increased the spread of disease. By all measures, subjecting a labor force, especially an enslaved one, to conditions ripe for disease and mass death would be classified as genocide. Historian of the Taino people of the Caribbean, Juan Perez de la Riva, posits another underappreciated factor in the eradication of indigenous peoples, a decline in mental health and an epidemic of suicide. During the first 40 years of Spanish colonization, the Taino population of Cuba fell from an estimated 100 to 200,000 to a mere 5,000. In his study, he estimates that as much as 30% or more of this catastrophic population death was due to suicide brought on by conditions created by the Spanish. While indigenous peoples were the major labor force in much of Latin America, enslaved black people were imported throughout the region, particularly in Caribbean nations and the Portuguese colony of Brazil. Even among the nominally egalitarian Europeans who may have been disturbed at the treatment of indigenous peoples, anti-black racism and support for the enslavement of black people remained. The importation of enslaved people from Africa was most common in regions with a relatively small indigenous population and highly labor-intensive commodities such as Cuba. Like in the rest of the Americas, runaways and slave revolts were common. Entire communities established themselves apart from the colonies, often making common cause with rebel Indians to conduct raids and defend themselves from colonizers. New cultures developed, such as the Garifuna people, who originated as a mixed race of indigenous and black slaves in the British colonies of the Caribbean, eventually fleeing genocide and establishing communities in Honduras, Nicaragua, Mexico, Belize, and Guatemala. A system of hierarchy developed to differentiate the social classes and role of different races. Classifications were developed for different mixtures of races as well. This pseudo-scientific hierarchy developed differently in each country. In Brazil, categories developed to differentiate combinations of race as well as skin color, creating numerous racial categories and a caste system deeply grounded in colorism. Black and white, black and Indian, white and Indian, all three, these could all be grounds for classification regardless of its basis in cultural or ethnic reality. While these systems varied from region to region, the most common designations were as follows. Indigenous peoples, usually classified as Indios or Indians, black people known as Negros, a local elite of white people born in the Americas known as Criollos or Creoles, with the white European-born Spanish elite at the top, known as Peninsulares. To complicate matters further, some of these designations had evolving definitions. For example, the Guatemalan term Ladino, similar to the term Mestizo used in other countries, could mean a mixture of Indian and white by blood. At other times, a full Indian could become Ladino by speaking Spanish and adopting westernized Hispanic culture and religion. For the purposes of this episode, I'll be using the phrase indigenous people to refer to the Guatemalan class of Indian. But remember that the Latin American race system could be fluid and certainly didn't correspond to the cultural and ethnic differences among the different indigenous peoples of Guatemala, which include the Kikche, the Kekchi, the Archi, among many, many other distinct peoples. The political events of the colonial and post-colonial periods of Latin America, 
would be defined by the conflicts between these different racial and economic classes, as well as interference in these conflicts from the United States. The wars of independence from Spain were usually characterized by the development of liberal modernizers on one side, usually white Creoles resentful of the increasingly archaic Spanish monarchy and inspired by Republican politics in France and the United States. On the other side were the conservatives, often dominated by Spanish-born peninsulares, whose interests lay in maintaining the feudal system invested in continued dominance of the Catholic Church over education and social structure. The roles of free black people, enslaved people, Indians, and mestizo people in wars of independence varied according to time and place. In addition to the influence of the white planter revolution of the North Americans and the bourgeois republican revolutionary process in France, the Haitian revolution of enslaved people and wealthy free blacks against the white colonizers also impacted the political movements throughout Latin America and the rest of the world. Haiti was the first country of Latin America and the Caribbean to achieve independence. Within a few decades, the vast majority of other countries would follow. Among the most famous of these campaigns of independence was the political and military success of Simón Bolívar, the wealthy Creole born in Caracas, who would lead successful wars of independence against Spain and the colonies that comprise modern-day Venezuela, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Panama. Culturally, patriarchy characterized much of life in Central America and Southern Mexico, although this would be a gross reduction of the complexity. Evidence suggests that homosexuality, gender fluidity, and even women in power were not unheard of during the pre-colonial period although anthropologists caution against taking direct conclusions from the incomplete and not always in context records. Rosemary A. Joyce, from an excerpt of her work featured in the Guatemalan Reader, edited by Greg Grandin, writes, Texts talked about supernatural beings who encompassed male and female aspects, or who were male and female at different points in time. This kind of variability part of what the art historian Cecilia Klein has characterized as gender ambiguity, was routinely associated with positions of political power. Some male officials in classic Maya and 16th century Mexican societies appeared to cross-dress, wearing items of clothing understood to be normal for women. During the colonial period, gender and sexuality politics were deeply impacted by the imposition of Catholicism throughout the Americas. The church may have had a mildly moderating effect on the brutality of the conquistadors, but the clergy also aggressively enforced rigid gender roles and linked sexuality to supernatural, satanic influences. Now for a brief detour to the topic of chocolate, dear to our hearts. In Guatemala, chocolate became associated with witchcraft and the control of men's sexuality. Martha Few, also featured in the Guatemala Reader, describes complaints registered with Inquisition authorities accusing wives of casting spells on their husbands, typically in response to women refusing to carry out their rigid place in an increasingly patriarchal society. Quoting an Inquisition summary of Juan de Fuentes' testimony, His wife treats him not as a husband but as a servant. He lights the fire in the kitchen, he boils the water, he mixes the chocolate and heats the food. He gets up very early every morning to do this, while his wife stays in bed and sleeps until very late. 
and when his wife wakes, he brings her chocolate so she can drink it after she dresses. In this way, his wife has turned him into a coward, and all this cannot be a natural thing. This association of chocolate and women's liberation with Satanism and witchcraft often served as a cover for sexual assault at the hands of men, who would testify that the woman served chocolate before the man lost control. As is often the case, these gender roles were met with the most brilliant affirmative resistance. There are reports of women intentionally drinking chocolate beverages in public venues to challenge authorities, even openly flaunting their devil's drink when attending mass. By 1821, the eve of Guatemalan independence, Central America was still relatively underdeveloped and economically irrelevant. There existed some mines for ore extraction. Enslaved Africans and Ladino laborers worked on cattle and sugar farms, among other sectors. But generally speaking, the region produced little in comparison to other parts of the Spanish Empire. Indigenous people, somewhat protected from the harshest labor by the church, were even beginning to recover from the violence and disease of the Spanish conquest in subsequent centuries. Throughout the 19th century, a continent-wide trend of Creole liberal modernizers entering conflict with conservative peninsulares and the Catholic Church developed leading to the independence of the majority of Latin America. By the 1860s, a full half-century after independence from Spain, wealthy Creoles realized that the conservative way of life was standing in the way of economic development. There was much profit to be made through coffee export, if only modernization and liberalization of the economy could be achieved. As a rebel movement swept the countryside, Landowners seeking favorable economic development threw their support behind the movement and successfully established a liberal regime which enacted sweeping reforms. The first priority was to acquire more land for cultivation. They loathed the Indians for their subsistence farming and felt entitled to take the land for themselves in order to make the land more productive. Daniel Wilkinson, a human rights expert and attorney with experience reporting on human rights abuses throughout Latin America, including the Guatemalan Truth Commission of the late 90s, describes the policies of the liberal era post-1871. The government decree that most of the Piedmont was uncultivated and put it up for public auction. Most of these lands were already being farmed by Indian communities. The decree defined utilized lands, as only those planted with coffee, sugar, cocoa, or cattle feed. Within a decade, the Piedmont was transformed into an archipelago of large coffee plantations. Financing the capital to establish these large plantations proved tricky. As Wilkinson writes, Land could be turned into a national resource by dispossessing indigenous communities. Capital could only come from abroad. In order to attract investment, the liberal regime waged a public relations campaign to depict Guatemala as safe for investment. Embarrassed at their own indigenous population, the campaign sought to portray Guatemala as cultured and refined. Capital and labor disputes which agitate in other countries do not exist there. Neither do ill feelings or spite form a feature of the inhabitants. The regime invested heavily in beautification and architecture inspired by European classicism and art. Opera houses, broad tree-lined avenues, and even temples of Minerva. 
They even began to incentivize German immigrants with tax and duty exemptions, attracting white labor that would rapidly ascend into a middle class of rural German plantation owners. By the end of the century, Germans owned over a third of coffee production, with foreigners controlling the majority overall. In 1888, Brazil abolished slavery, disrupting their coffee production and raising prices dramatically. Guatemalan planters benefited initially, but they were hit by an economic crash upon the resumption of Brazilian coffee exports. The Guatemalan government found itself in deep debt. The crisis spiraled into violence that climaxed with the assassination of President Barrios in 1898. The military high command convened to decide on the next president. According to some accounts, they were compelled by a gun-toting Manuel Estrada Cabrera to hand over the presidency. President Estrada Cabrera later inspired the title character of Miguel Ángel Asturias's most famous work, the Latin American literature classic El Presidente. The real-life El Presidente broke strikes, sold the country's wealth to foreign corporations, and rigged elections. His callousness and indifference towards the suffering of Guatemalans during natural disasters is almost Trumpian. In the following excerpt, Wilkinson describes El Presidente's public relations campaign and the government response during concurrent natural disasters. The Feast of Minerva was Estrada Cabrera's presentation of Guatemala before the world. A diplomatic liaison of the president in Europe described the press coverage of the event. From France, Such ceremonies in honor of education are a wise example for the rest of Latin America. From Germany, Guatemala deserves the enviable name of Athens of the New World. Wilkinson resumes, The destructive force of geological violence, already in March of 1902, had severely damaged the docking facility in the port used to export the coffee of San Marcos. In September, a tidal wave washed away another portion of the same docks. In the weeks following the eruption, the ash-filled river would overflow and wreck what remained of the port, preventing many landowners in San Marcos from exporting the year's harvest. The eruption would destroy plantations below the volcano in Quetzaldenango and damage others as far away as Mundo Nuevo. The guests gathered for the Minerva celebration in Guatemala City on October 24th may have felt the tremors, but since the fire and ash were many miles away, they wouldn't know that yet another natural disaster was taking its toll on the year's coffee production. The festivities went forward, but Estrada Cabrera wasn't delusional. As soon as the guests had gone home, the government newspaper, which had until then reported that there was no volcanic eruption in Guatemala, conceded that in fact Santa Maria had exploded, though it maintained that the damage was far less than rumor would have it. The government drafted workers from the surrounding highland communities in order to replenish the labor supply throughout the western Piedmont and make sure that the year's coffee crop would be harvested. This was the most the president could do. He couldn't control nature. He couldn't control international capital. The only thing he could control was the Guatemalan people, and that control was the basis of the coffee nation. Throughout its history, Guatemala's control over the labor force had been rigid and ruthless. Rooted in European racism, the elite and middle planter class accused indigenous peoples of laziness 
stemming from a lack of civilized needs. In the words of President Barria's Minister of Development, it is necessary to make the Indian work for his own good. He is satisfied with practically nothing. Militias were posted throughout the countryside to enforce control over indigenous labor. By the early 1920s, a struggling economy and frustration with El Presidente provoked the Congress to organize a procedural coup, declaring Estrada Cabrera mentally unfit for office and removing him from the presidency. El Presidente's tenure proved long, violent, and increasingly absurd and senile, to quote the Guatemala reader. The end of the Estrada Cabrera era marked a turning point for indigenous political aspirations. Theoretically, they'd been given the legal right to vote as citizens since 1879. However, literacy laws required that the majority of illiterate Indians vote publicly, often in large groups by collective assent. Literate indigenous peoples were allowed to vote by secret ballot, but still only had one choice. With the fall of El Presidente, multi-party elections opened new possibilities for the indigenous masses, urban workers, and middle-class professionals. While literacy tests remained, Grandin notes that, now that vote actually mattered. Indigenous activists such as Jose Angel Ico backed the winning candidate, Carlos Herrera. Activists like Ico subsequently felt emboldened, organizing plantation labor and expanding their reach wider than before. Even before Cabrera's fall, Ico had been an effective organizer. A week prior, Ico led 112 Kekchi laborers to Congress with a petition demanding a decree to recognize indisputable rights of the Indian. Grandin quotes the petition. Newspapers constantly complain of the abuses that are committed daily by authorities against us, but nothing has been done. It is therefore necessary that we ourselves demand before the August National Congress their rights that belong to us. If Guatemala wants to take its place among the civilized nations of the world so as to celebrate with dignity the centenary of its independence, it needs to give the Indian his complete liberty. During its 99 years of independence, the authorities have not recognized the citizenship and liberty of the Indian. It would therefore be just, very just, to today concede the rights that belong to him, so that Articles 16 and 17 of the Constitution not merely be a myth. The duties of the authorities of the Republic are to ensure that its inhabitants enjoy their rights, which are liberty, equality, and security of persons, honor, and property. Among their demands, an end to compulsory labor and military service and an end of special taxes on indigenous people. With the election of Herrera, the plantation owners saw activists like Ico as a threat. They condemned Ico's reckless mouth, complained of labor strikes and laziness, with one plantation owner by the name of Erwin Dieseldorf stating, Indians all have a mistaken understanding of free labor, which they believe means we work only as needed to support ourselves, the rest of the time we can do as we wish. By the following year, Herrera was overthrown. The military blunted the wave of labor unrest in the cities and the countryside, prompting increasingly confrontational tactics in response. Ico, along with his brother, Santiago Kukul, began to organize land invasions. 
45 indigenous laborers joined Kukul and Eco as they began to plant corn on Dieseldorf's unused plots of land. The plantation owner complained that any attempts to reclaim the value of crops grown and harvested on his land would be met with rifle fire by Eco's increasingly assertive movement. For the rest of the decade, Eco successfully fought off legal challenges from plantation owners, even winning a disputed claim over some of Dieseldorf's land. In 1927, Eco was arrested and accused of threatening a planter, but was released after no witnesses came forward. Upon his release, he defiantly demanded his gun and knife back, presenting his license to carry. By the 1930s, the political tide was turning, however. Eco lost a number of legal challenges and lost some of the land he'd won for himself and other laborers. The situation deteriorated with the ascendancy of the next great Guatemalan dictator, Jorge Ubico, who ordered Eco's arrest and subsequent seven-kilometer march while tied to a horse, a humiliation intended to remind would-be indigenous organizers of their place in the feudal plantations of Guatemala. Wilkinson describes an interview he conducted with a former laborer who lived through General Jorge Ubico's 14 years of rule. They had us living like slaves, Ortega said when I asked him to tell me about life in the good old days. They used debts to keep us there so we couldn't go to other plantations. After several years of working at El Progreso, he realized that conditions were better in other plantations and began working on Sundays in neighboring La Independencia to earn the cash necessary to pay off his debt to El Progreso. Keep your money, they told me. Enjoy it. Eat well. Let your kids eat well. But I told them, no, thank you. I don't want to be in debt anymore. Ortega was packing his belongings when the plantation had him arrested on the grounds that he was absconding with an unpaid debt. After three days in jail, he managed to communicate with the administrator of La Independencia, who visited the jail and lent him three pesos. The administrator then went to the local justice of the peace and demanded that Ortega be free to work off this new three-peso debt. The official obliged on the grounds that La Independencia had more claim to Ortega's work than El Progreso did, since he now owed more money there. And that's how I became a worker in La Independencia. Debt peonage imposed a feudal semi-slavery on indigenous laborers who were routinely beaten and even shackled by the planters. Ubico replaced this system with a new method of forcing labor control. Vagrancy laws. The government imposed stiff penalties for idleness, with the criteria carefully designed to disenfranchise small landowners, mostly indigenous people, from their modest holdings and force them to work on large plantations. By changing the definition of what was considered productive work, it was now legal to arrest and jail indigenous people who were only working their own private land or who otherwise were not employed by a plantation. This forced free, subsistence farmers to labor for the planters. Wilkinson quotes Ortega, We had to carry a booklet, like an identity card, which showed what plantation we worked in and how many hours we had worked that year. If you didn't carry it, the government could jail you and make you work without pay. Labor drafts were implemented through a labor tax. Conveniently, indigenous laborers were unable to pay the tax, and thus were required to perform one full week of road work per year. Workers were assigned far from their home communities, 
and required to bring their own food, meant to last the entire week without resupply and sleep on the side of the road. Beatings were common. Eventually, the work requirement was increased to two weeks and was set to be increased even further had the dictatorship not fallen in the mid-1940s. Forced labor, debt peonage, and vagrancy laws had the net effect of transferring what little land and power the indigenous people had over to Ladinos, foreign landlords, and private capital. In the last colonial massacre, Latin America and the Cold War, Greg Grandin provides stark data from the state of Alta Verapaz. In 1870, the vast majority of Kekchis and Verapaz resided in dispersed free villages. By 1921, close to 40% of the total population of Alta Verapaz lived on plantations as resident peons. Taxes, military conscription, obligations to provide free or undercompensated labor on public works and vagrancy laws, including the 1934 decree, pushed Kekchis onto the plantation. Once there, they found themselves utterly dependent on the will and disposition of the planter. Plantations had their own jails, stockages, and whipping posts, and planters fought any attempt by the state to intervene in their labor relations or to use their workers on public projects. Reports from this period describe the forcing of indigenous peoples, many of whom could not read or speak Spanish, to sign contracts with planters. Debts were passed on from parent to child. Laborers who fled their plantation had their crops and possessions taken to offset the cost of their recapture. Grand denotes that during this period of liberal hypocrisy, certain freedoms and political activity remained relatively open for other sectors of society such as intellectuals and political dissidents from other countries. While the working conditions and repression of laborers could be severe, the state did, however, offer avenues for civic complaint, however limited the outcomes. Grandin writes, By the 1920s, the potentially liberating and actually repressive elements of Guatemalan liberalism combined to transform the way indigenous representatives engage with the government, a change marked by the above petition. Riots, which under colonial and early Republican rule were common means of confronting local abuses, became increasingly rare. Following a series of violent protests against coffee planters and settlers, the last notable revolt took place in 1905. The repressive foreclosure on these strategies led to a more direct engagement with liberal nationalism, turning to Ladino notaries, lawyers, and hired wordsmiths to draft their complaints Indigenous petitioners increasingly endorsed a hope that justice could be achieved not by a return to a colonial past, but by the fulfillment of national and human development. Liberalism in Guatemala served two contradictory roles between the 1871 revolution and the coming 1944 revolution. On the one hand, the liberal regime sought to industrialize, Europeanize, and seek foreign capital investment. To achieve modernization, the liberals allowed a limited amount of press and political freedom in urban areas while exerting a harsh, violent, and borderline slave-like labor control among the majority indigenous population. On the other hand, the building of a state infrastructure and modernized republic brought civic engagement, legal process, and the possibility of reform. Of course, these levers were as good as symbolic for the majority of indigenous people. But the groundwork had been laid for the 1944 October Revolution. 
14 years of the Ubico dictatorship came to a sudden end in the last year of World War II. During the spring of 1944, middle-class, working-class, and student demonstrators launched a sudden mass movement in what Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer describe as the first serious opposition to the Ubico dictatorship. Since independence from Spain over a century earlier, political movements had been the domain of a tiny ruling elite. A broad-based mass mobilization of teachers, skilled workers, students, and petty bourgeois shopkeepers was unheard of and completely unexpected. The coalition of different classes demanded an expansion of democracy, impossible under even a liberal dictatorship. In Bitter Fruit, the story of the American coup in Guatemala, Schlesinger and Kinzer describe the importance of World War II and the influence of American New Deal liberalism on this sudden, rapidly growing movement. 1,500 days of global warfare also exposed Guatemalans to promises of democracy heard over shortwave radio. President Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, the declaration that all humanity was entitled to freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, stirred a new generation of Guatemalans aware of the inequities in their own society and made Roosevelt a hero in Guatemala. His advocacy of trade unions also struck a responsive chord in a country where labor was just beginning to think about organizing. Roosevelt's New Deal convinced many Guatemalans, in short, that they deserve the government actively devoted to the public good. Schlesinger and Kinzer add that the Guatemalans were inspired by Mexico, Guatemala's northern neighbor. Since the early 20th century Mexican Revolution, Mexico developed a staunchly nationalist political culture. While the most radical leaders of the revolution were dead or marginalized by the 1920s, post-revolution Mexico established itself as firmly independent of the United States. In the 1930s, Mexican President Cárdenas nationalized the oil industry, strengthened labor protections, and introduced a major land reform law. While the revolutionary nature of the Mexican state would gradually erode over the decades and give way to a corrupt one-party capitalist regime, the Mexico of the mid-20th century still inspired left-leaning nationalists throughout Latin America. Throughout the turbulent months of protests in 1944, the United States did little to protect Ubico, who had proven unpredictable and difficult to work with. Moreover, he was a Nazi sympathizer, at a time when the United States was at war with Germany. Under these conditions, teachers were the first to act. On June 29, 1944, teachers rallied in Guatemala City to demand higher wages. They announced that they would refuse to march in the annual teachers' parade, scheduled for the next day. On June 30th, the demonstration swelled with additional supporters. The middle-class revolt now demanded Ubico's resignation. In response, the president ordered cavalry units to charge into the crowd, killing or injuring 200 demonstrators. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, Ubico, faced with growing public outrage, declared a state of siege. He was stunned by the turn of events, since his advisors had always assured him he was beloved by all his subjects. Ubico's political base was the landed aristocracy, Guatemala's traditional governing elite. Now the autocracy was crumbling. A few days after the massive demonstration in Guatemala City, 
311 teachers, lawyers, doctors, small businessmen, and other citizens handed Yubiko a petition of protest. This seminal statement, the petition of the 311, expressed the full solidarity of the signers with the legitimate aspirations of the protesters. The document shocked Yubiko, the more so because it had been presented to him personally by men he knew as friends and prominent citizens. On July 1st, amazed at the passionate opposition to his rule, he resigned his office and turned over power to one of the military commanders, General Federico Ponce. The general imagined that the swift resignation meant protests would soon subside, but the U.S. ambassador soon cabled Washington, stating that while everyday life appeared to have returned to normal on the surface, the future would be rife with political activity. General Ponce raised teacher salaries and implemented minor reforms, but he subsequently increased surveillance and political repression. That fall, the assassination of Alejandro Cordova, Guatemala's most well-known journalist and a member of the National Assembly, shocked the nation. Murders of unknown civilians, particularly rural indigenous laborers at the hands of local authorities, was not unheard of. But the murder of a famous journalist at the orders of the highest level of government was new territory. Ponce announced elections and declared his own candidacy in a bid to prove his legitimacy. A number of candidates put themselves forward to challenge the general, but the usual suspects were tainted by the corrupt politics of the regime. Finally, the opposition found their man, Schlesinger and Kinzerite. The revolutionaries found their ideal candidate in Dr. Juan José Arrevalo Bermejo, himself a teacher, who had been living in exile for the past 14 years in Argentina as a professor of philosophy at the University of Tucumán. He had written several patriotic and uplifting textbooks on history, geography, and civics that were in use throughout Guatemala, so his name was familiar to the teachers who formed the backbone of the revolutionary movement. He was a visionary, a serious thinker whose heroes included Simone Bolivar, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. His aspiration was to spread the principles of the New Deal throughout Latin America. Arevalo answered the call though he doubted his own ability to mount a campaign with no money or resources. But upon his return to Guatemala on September 2, 1944, Arevalo was greeted with a massive, enthusiastic demonstration consisting of working and middle-class Guatemalans from various professional sectors. Practically overnight, he was thrust from being a semi-known exile academic into the face of the revolution. The popular candidate was forced into hiding immediately after his return in order to avoid arrest. By October, Ponce's regime was in trouble. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, Two young officers who had fled several months earlier to neighboring El Salvador to plan a revolt slipped back into the country. The two commanders, Major Francisco Arana and Captain Jacobo Arbenz, made a dramatic move before dawn on October 20th. They killed their superior officers at Fort Matamoros and distributed arms stored there to eager students. Joined spontaneously by a number of other army units, they launched quick attacks against police stations and other military installations. Ponce tried to persuade the U.S. Embassy to supply bombs for his air force, but to no avail. After several days of sporadic fighting, on October 20th, he finally accepted a settlement with the rebels. 
Ponce then departed for the safety of the Mexican embassy. Guatemala's October Revolution was won in the Lightning Uprising, which cost less than 100 lives. Major Arana and Captain Arbenz, the victorious heroes, formed an interim junta with prominent businessman Jorge Torriello and announced immediately that free elections, the first in the nation's history under a democratic constitution, would soon be held. The new ruling junta embraced Arevalo as its candidate. From the onset, Arevalo sought to maintain a broad consensus of support backing his candidacy. He cast himself as a left-leaning liberal, distancing himself from communism while advocating that the government play a role in improving the lives of common people. The election was held in December 1944. Arevalo took a sweeping 85% of the vote. During the interim between his election and taking office, the Guatemalan political system was completely overhauled, seemingly overnight. The constitution was dissolved, and countless laws immediately abolished. Government employees and military allies of the Ubico regime were purged from their positions. The secret police and the National Assembly were dissolved. A constitutional assembly was elected, and a new constitution ratified two days before the inauguration. The new supreme law of the land was modeled after constitutions of revolutionary Mexico and the Second Spanish Republic. Term limits for Congress and the President were introduced, an active military banned from running for office. Voting rights were expanded, though illiterate women remained disenfranchised. Significantly, Congress now had the power to remove cabinet ministers and Supreme Court justices and high office holders required to declare their net worth for public scrutiny. Equal pay for men and women were now a constitutional guarantee. Discrimination based on race became a crime, and the government reserved the right to expropriate some private property. Labor organizing, paid maternity leave, and a ban on the use of company scrip in lieu of legal currency are just a few of the additional rights enshrined in the new constitution. Arevalo began his six-year term in March 1945. Social security laws and additional labor code confirmed the administration's New Deal liberal approach to politics. Schlesinger and Kinzer quote the Minister of Labor. A capitalist democracy ought to compensate with the means at its disposal, some of which are legislative, for the economic inequality between those who possess the means of production and those who sell manual labor. Almost immediately, living standards and pay rose significantly for indigenous laborers, whose wages increased from 5 to 20 cents a day, although unionization remained forbidden on all but the largest plantations. For all the major advancements in rights and living standards for rural and urban workers, loopholes and exemptions were implemented as a concession to plantation owners and capital. In his inaugural speech, the new president directly referenced FDR, advocating for a democratic, capitalist economy with a spirit of socialism. The following year, Arevalo expanded his political theory in a 1945 speech outlining the political history of Guatemala. Conservatism and liberalism are doctrines that in America blossomed and died in the 19th century. Conservatism was the political doctrine of the Guatemalans of 1821. They installed a shell of a republic, the fundamental objective of which was to conserve the Spanish way of life. With the ascent to power of liberal ideas in 1871, 
The new colonial system of 1821 was neutralized, and a sense of national liberation began to form. But the liberalism of 1871 was just a doctrine. It was simply that doctrine we have all admired since childhood. The doctrine of national emancipation from colonial systems. But in practice, disgracefully, liberalism was from the very beginning, and continued to be until a scant few days ago, a colonial system in disguise, with which pithy words and bombastic rhetoric apply the same methods of rule as had colonialism and conservatism, because both doctrines share the same methods. It became impossible to distinguish conservatives from liberals but for their last names. Liberalism was dying a slow and tortured death by asphyxiation, asphyxiated by the mental and moral incapacity. It has been a century since economics, politics, and culture have been reorganized according to socialist ideas. This socialism began as utopian and continued on as materialistic and has come to be, in our time, spiritual. We believe that man, above all else, deserves dignity. To be a man with dignity, or to be nothing, for this reason, our socialism is not oriented towards the naive distribution of material goods. Our socialism seeks to liberate men psychologically, to return them all of the psychological and spiritual integrity that was denied them by conservatism and liberalism. A worker who is well-fed and well-dressed is not our goal. The general's horses have also been well-fed, well-harnessed, and even given hot baths and preventative medicines. Good food and good clothes are indeed needs that should be attended to. But first, we must invest the worker with all of his dignities as a man, destroying at the same time the many pretexts that have been used to keep him in humiliation and servitude. Despite Revelo's anti-communist politics and concessions to planters and capitalists, a growing discontent with the Guatemalan Revolution was brewing. By September 1946, right-wing forces organized several failed coup attempts, prompting mass demonstrations in support of the new republic. One of the supporters of the government, Victor Manuel Gutierrez, a labor leader who would later help found the Communist Party, warned that Latin America's democratic wave was coming under attack by an alliance of right-wing forces. Arevalo spoke later of cangrejos, or the crabs who govern our country from the dark, who wanted to overturn the democratic process of Guatemala. Again, he compared the October Revolution to the politics of FDR, adding, The bankers called him a communist. By 1948, the situation began to deteriorate. That year, Military coups overthrew democracies in Venezuela and Peru, with more right-wing coups to come in the following years. Abroad, this had the effect of depriving the Arevalo government of democratic allies. At home, the cross-class revolutionary coalition that developed out of the 1944 demonstrations began to fissure. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, Despite good intentions, Arevalo had no cohesive program after his first round of reforms and his bickering political base was eroding. Parties which had united to back him argued amongst themselves, and the newspapers used their newfound freedom to attack the government relentlessly. Labor unions unsettled the country by a series of strikes, including the almost continuous actions against the United Fruit Company between June 1948 and March 1949. 
Late 1948, Arevalo declared a state of national emergency when a large shipment of arms was found in railroad cars at Puerto Barrios, the Atlantic terminus of the United Fruit Company's rail line. Soon afterward, a group of disgruntled exiles attempted to oppose the government by invading from Mexico. Conservative middle-class landowners, the Catholic Church, and American capital all supported Ubico's overthrow, but each had their own reasons for opposing the reforms implemented after the October Revolution. Archbishop Mariano Rosselli Ariano turned on Arevalo early, condemning the revolution as a subversion of the traditional social relationship between indigenous and Ladino. He took particular umbrage at Arevalo's description of welfare as a right, weakening the church's power over the poor via charity. Influenced by Falangism, the Spanish variant of European fascism, the archbishop called for restoring social unity and accused the government of egging on indigenous activists, a Guatemalan version of the outside agitators myth. From the Guatemala Reader, quoting the archbishop, Communism revived in Guatemala a racial hatred which had nearly been dead for centuries the hatred of the Indian for the Ladino. The peasant was told that the conquistadors and their descendants, the landlords, had dispossessed them from their land, and the party would return to them the lands which had been stolen by the former. The land-hungry peasants began systematically to take over the land. We must not leave unmentioned that marvelous and highly effective tactic for their devilish conquest, the draining of peasant leaders locally recruited if possible, in sharing the local customs. The major right-wing political leader of the Arevalo years was Colonel Francisco Arana, one of the two military leaders of the October Revolution. Arana enjoyed autonomy in his post as chief of staff for the armed forces and gradually flexed his muscles as he subverted the reforms of President Arevalo, even blocking a $50 million highway construction loan. By the end of his six-year term, Arevalo had survived a stunning 25 attempted coup plots. He attributed many of these plots to the colonel, telling a colleague in 1949, In Guatemala, there are two presidents, and one of them has a machine gun with which he is always threatening the other. The situation was beginning to boil over. Defying constitutional law, Colonel Arana declared his candidacy for president, but refused to step down from his military position as required by the Constitution. If legislators attempted to enforce the Constitution, Arana threatened, he would order the military to seize and dissolve the Congress. Supporters of the revolution became frustrated at Arana's flagrant disregard for constitutionalism and through their support for the candidacy of Jacobo Arbenz, the defense minister and former army captain who organized the October 1944 revolution alongside Arana. Mistrust between the two began even prior to Arevalo taking office, when Arana attempted to sideline the interim three-person junta and take sole power for himself. His appointment as chief of staff was a concession meant to ensure his loyalty, but by 1948, even the U.S. Embassy was convinced that Arana would stop at nothing to install himself as president. In July of 1949, Arana issued an ultimatum to the president. Hand over power to the military and finish out his term as a powerless figurehead. Arbenz and Arevalo were convinced that the chief of staff would not wait for the election before seizing power. 
Thus, they decided to neutralize the threat by arresting and charging Arana for conspiracy against the government. However, the threat of a right-wing revolt meant that the chief of staff would likely need to be immediately expelled from the country, quickly and in secret, rather than merely arrested. On July 18, 1949, Arana's vehicle was stopped at the Puente La Gloria Bridge. The chief of staff drew his gun, and a shootout ensued. When it was over, the right-wing army chief was dead. The circumstances around the death led some to believe that a kidnapping gone wrong was merely a cover story for an assassination plot. While Arevalo and Arbenz rarely exercised repression or political violence during their presidencies, the likely murder of Arana would haunt both men for the rest of their political careers. Schlesinger and Kinzer quote historian Ronald Schneider, According to the best available evidence, the group who killed Arana included the chauffeur of Senora de Arbenz, who later became a deputy in the Arbenz Congress and was headed by Alfonso Martinez Estevez, a close friend of Colonel Arbenz who later served as private secretary to the president and chief of the National Agrarian Department. While we cannot be sure who made the decision to kill Arana, it was done in the interests of Arbenz, and Arevalo failed to conduct any inquiry into the matter. As expected, military officers loyal to Arana launched a rebellion that took three days to put down. In response, the government temporarily armed labor unions, who subsequently organized a general strike to shut down the city and prevent the right wing from toppling Arevalo. The primary domestic threat to Guatemalan democracy had been eliminated, and the election moved forward. Jacobo Arbenz, like Arevalo before him, found support from younger military officers, urban and rural workers. Aranistas were sacked from military positions, but other right-wing figures and their supporters would rise in the void. These rising right-wing forces planned and carried out more coup plots during the following months. One of the most prominent of these serial coup plotters was a former colonel and Aranista, Castillo Armas an obscure figure who would become infamous throughout Guatemala in just a few years. In January 1950, the CIA established their earliest known contact with the future dictator of Guatemala. Nick Cullither, author of Secret History, the CIA's classified account of its operations in Guatemala, 1952-54, writes, A protege of Aranas, he had risen fast in the military joining the general staff and becoming director of the military academy until early 1949, when he was assigned to command the remote garrison of Mazatenango. He was there when his patron was assassinated on July 18th, but he did not hear of the Aranista revolt until four days later, when he received orders relieving him of his post. Arbenz had him arrested in August and held on a trumped-up charge until December. When a CIA agent interviewed him a month later, he was trying to obtain arms from Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza and Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo. The interviewer described him as a quiet, soft-spoken officer who does not seem to be given to exaggeration. He claimed to have the support of the Guardia Civil, the Quetzaltenango garrison, and the commander of the capital's largest fortress, Matamoros. He met with a CIA informer in August, and again in November, just a few days before he and a handful of adventurers mounted a futile assault on Matamoros. A year later, 
Castillo Armas bribed his way out of prison and fled to Honduras, where he thrilled rightist exiles with stories of his rebellion and escape. He planned another uprising, telling supporters he had secret backers in the army. This was delusional. After the July uprising, Arbenz was the army's undisputed leader, and he took steps to keep it that way. Armas's July uprising occurred almost a year after the death of Arana. On the anniversary of Arana's death, right-wing demonstrations were organized in front of the National Palace. General Miguel Idegras Fuentes, a former Ubico ally and corrupt politician, took Arana's place as the leader of the opposition. If Armas represented the more rapidly anti-communist faction of the Guatemalan right-wing, Idegras Fuentes would come to represent a more mainstream anti-communism. Both factions would utilize political violence, but the latter would attempt to establish a nominally constitutional system. Urban workers confronted the right-wing demonstrations, using unarmed physical violence to protect the government and disperse the demonstrations. As General Fuentes organized more anti-government protests, supporters of the revolution shifted their tactics towards harassment, eventually forcing Idegras Fuentes to seek asylum. The right-wing threat remained, but the mass popular base of Arbencistas, including 90,000 members of the major labor confederation and a growing confederation of rural peasants known as campesinos, were prepared to take action against would-be Puchists. The election was held, and Arbenz won the presidency with 65% of the vote, Guatemalan democracy had been saved yet again by a proportionate use of armed and unarmed political militancy by workers and rural labor. The new president was inaugurated on March 15, 1951. Arevalo's speech marking the democratic transfer of power reflected a certain unease, despite the continued survival of the revolution. His words, particularly those alluding to rebranding of fascism as anti-communism in the post-war era, are prescient. On the 15th of March 1945, when I ascended to the presidency of the nation, I was possessed by a romantic fire. I was still a believer in the essential nobleness of man, as fervent a believer as the most devout in the sincerity of political doctrines and inspired by the deep aspiration to help people create their own happiness. I still believed that the Republic of Guatemala could rule itself without submission to external forces, free from mandates that did not emanate from the popular will of the majority. To achieve this in Guatemala, we had to combat the peculiar economic and social system of the country, of a country in which the culture, politics, and economy were in the hands of 300 families, heirs to the privileges of colonial times or rented to the foreign factors, the banana magnates. Co-nationals of Roosevelt rebelled against the audacity of a Central American president who gave to his fellow citizens a legal equality with the honorable families of exporters. It was then that the schoolteacher, ingenious and romantic, from the presidency of his country, discovered how perishable, frail, and slippery the brilliant international doctrines of democracy and freedom were. It was then, with the deepest despondency and pain, that I felt, with consequent indignation, the pressure of that anonymous force that rules, without laws or morals, international relations, and the relationships of men. 
The war that began in 1939 ended, but in the ideological dialogue between the two worlds and two leaders, Roosevelt lost the war. The real victor was Hitler. Little caricatures of Hitler sprang up and multiplied in Europe and here in the Americas. It is my personal opinion that the contemporary world is moved by the ideas that served as the foundation on which Hitler rose to power. As Arbenz took power on a platform to advance the principles of the October Revolution, to represent the interests of indigenous peoples, rural and urban workers, right-wing forces at home continued to threaten Guatemalan democracy. Foreign capital also took note. The United Fruit Company traces its origins to the founding of the Boston Fruit Company in 1885. Banana was fast becoming a lucrative market, and the company rapidly expanded. By 1898, they were importing 16 million banana bunches per year. The company established banana harvest operations in Cuba, Jamaica, and Santo Domingo. But the company was unable to keep up with demand, and looked to purchase land in order to establish fully controlled plantations where the company could dominate life and labor. In 1899, Boston Fruit merged with an American company based in Central America to form the United Fruit Company. The new assets added by the merger included over 200,000 acres of land and 112 miles of railroad stretching throughout Latin America. The lands had been purchased for next to nothing, with Manuel Estrada Cabrera granting United Fruit a 99-year deal to build and operate a major rail line the aforementioned railway connecting Guatemala City with Puerto Barrios, the major port on the Atlantic. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, United Fruit by 1930 had operating capital of $215 million and owned sprawling properties not only on three Caribbean islands where Captain Baker had laid the foundations, but also in Panama, Honduras, Nicaragua, Colombia, and in its largest domain, Guatemala. United Fruit was determined to establish fiefdoms and near-dictatorial control over local governments. As an American corporation, they had strong backing from the American government. Since the 1820s, the United States reserved the right to intervene politically and militarily in Latin America under the guise of opposing European colonialism in the Americas. Adopted under James Monroe, this doctrine provided legal and political justification for intimidating Latin American governments into providing favorable conditions for American capital. When Latin American governments exerted too much independence, the United States had not hesitated to use lethal force and military occupation to get its way. In the first two decades of the 20th century alone, the United States staged military interventions in Cuba the Dominican Republic, Mexico, Venezuela, and Panama. However, the Honduran coup of 1910 was engineered by a private citizen, a Russian-born planter with his own banana and railway company, Sam Zamuri, without sponsorship from the U.S. government. Zamuri purchased a ship, made contact with a political opponent of the then-president, loaded the ship with rifles, machine guns, and ammunition, and sailed a small group of armed rebels across the sea into Honduras. They launched a rebellion that would ultimately end in Zamuri's man taking the presidency and Honduras providing the banana man with an agreement 
giving him everything he wanted. Two decades later, Zamuri sold off his now major banana operation in Honduras to United Fruit in exchange for $31.5 million in stock, further consolidating their control over the region and establishing Zamuri as the largest stockholder in the company. United Fruit was the largest employer, landowner, and exporter in all of Guatemala. Now under Zamuri's leadership, the company expanded even further. In 1936, it obtained exemption from all Guatemalan taxes and duties, and a guarantee of cheap labor from Ubico. By the October Revolution, United Fruit effectively controlled Puerto Barrios and virtually all railroads in the country. With the fall of Ubico and rise of Arevalo, however, United Fruit encountered its first serious pushback, however mild and reasonable, from the people of Guatemala. United Fruit employees began to strike for better wages and working conditions, prompting the company to claim persecution by Arevalo, despite the fact that the government had found one major strike illegal under the 1947 labor law. The spiritual socialism of the October Revolution attempted to placate capital, but to little avail. Soon, American congressmen were publicly condemning Guatemala. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, During 1949 and 1950, senators and congressmen of both parties assailed the Guatemalan government for its failure to safeguard the interests of United Fruit. Democratic Congressman John McCormick of Massachusetts, later Speaker of the House, underlined the concern of his constituents by noting that 90% of New Englanders' foreign investments were in Latin America. Upon taking office, Arbenz made clear his intentions to liberate Guatemala, not only from domestic serfdom, but also from foreign domination. To this end, the country would seek a more equal partnership with United Fruit and end its domination of the political and economic system. Plans to build a power plant and highways were designed to create competition and halt American capital's monopoly on electrical power and transport to and from the Atlantic port. In October of 1951, United Fruit met with Arbenz to demand an extension of the favorable terms and low taxes obtained under the Ubico dictatorship. The new president expressed a willingness to extend the contract with stipulations that displeased the company. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, The company would have to pledge respect for the laws and constitutions of Guatemala and accept the government as the final arbiter in any disputes between labor and management. In addition, he proposed that the docks at Puerto Barrios be improved, that rail freights be reduced, that United Fruit begin paying export duties, and that the company consider paying compensation for the exhaustion of Guatemalan land. The company was insulted and infuriated. Again, playing the victim despite decades of high profits, near-total domination of the country's economic development policy, and absurdly favorable contracts. Guatemalan autonomy was a threat, and United Fruit Public Relations consultant Edward Bernays was determined to neutralize that threat. Bernays was already four decades into a legendary career, having revolutionized the fields of advertising and public relations, and included celebrities, governments, and corporations among his long list of clients. Among his most famous innovations was a smoking campaign aimed at women, in which he linked women's liberation and autonomy to cigarettes. After consulting with a psychoanalyst, Bernays popularized the term 
Torches of Freedom and organized a public display of women smoking during a 1929 Easter parade. This public display shocked the public, as women smoking had been a taboo relegated to private spaces. Bernays was involved in casting the participants and ensuring professional photographs of the women were distributed worldwide, leading to a steady increase in smoking among women for years to come. Perhaps Bernays' most long-lasting contribution to history was his work on propaganda, having literally written the book Propaganda, published in 1928. Schlesinger and Kinzer quote from the book, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinion of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. It is the intelligent minorities which need to make use of propaganda continuously and systematically. Bernays also boasted of his strong ties to American print and broadcast media, with personal relationships to owners and publishers of papers, such as the New York Times, among many others. He also gained a reputation as an ardent liberal and supporter of the New Deal, again with close personal ties to the inner circle of FDR, and a track record of funding and advocating for progressive causes. Upon acquiring United Fruit as a client in 1949, he leveraged all these connections and launched a campaign to turn American public opinion ardently against the Guatemalan government. His first act was to shift United Fruit PR policy away from secrecy and aversion to publicity and towards openness and direct enthusiastic engagement with media and liberalism. This was done by providing journalists with vast but controlled access to company personnel and facilities. He set up a Middle America Information Bureau to provide fast and concise data to American and Latin American journalists. The company even began to found and fund newspaper operations aimed towards its own employees in Latin America. He also advocated improving some working conditions and infrastructure, providing better training and education for employees, and greater business transparency for company investors. These later measures were intended to improve the company's image and create more efficient operations. But Bernays encountered pushback from the company when results didn't immediately materialize. Bernays was undeterred from his strategy of appealing to liberal sentiment. He organized trips to Guatemala by journalists such as Fitzhugh Turner of the New York Herald Tribune, who based his series of articles, Communism in the Caribbean, mostly on prearranged interviews with United Fruit employees and officials. The story ran on the front page of the Herald for five consecutive days. New York Times publisher Arthur Hay Sulzberger returned from a trip to Guatemala, having witnessed staged disturbances meant to paint a picture of a country in chaos. Schlesinger and Kinzer write. Soon after, Sulzberger dispatched a reporter from the city desk, Will Lisner, to Guatemala. Lisner came back convinced the communist movement had colonized Guatemala by infiltrating Cadre from Chile. Perhaps more damning, these efforts were now influencing American media to ignore reports that deviated from the line that Guatemala was a communist hellscape. Arevalo's statement in solidarity with the United States, support for the war in Korea, denial of any connection to communist states, committing the country to political and military loyalty to the United States, and again stating his desire to model the country after 
the principles enunciated by Franklin Roosevelt. These statements were ignored by the Associated Press and New York Herald Tribune and received only brief mentions by UPI, Newsweek, and the Hearst International News Service. The New York Times reported the statements, but with only somewhat more detail than the aforementioned. The paper followed up in 1951 by dispatching another journalist, Creed H. Calhoun, who wrote a series of articles describing the advance of Marxism in the region. More free two-week trips, all expenses paid, each enlisting as many as ten journalists each, were organized by Bernays in the following years. United Fruit proceeded to lobby Washington, already sympathetic to the company, by recruiting progressive New Deal Democrats to the cause. These included Thomas G. Cochran, a former close advisor to FDR and later advisor to Lyndon Johnson, and Robert La Follette, a former Wisconsin senator, political ally to FDR, and founder of the Progressive Party. With FDR liberals firmly on the side of the United Fruit Company, the strategy now shifted to include the right wing in the growing anti-Guatemala plot. The company retained the services of the John Clements Associates. Zamuri instructed the right-wing PR firm to focus exclusively on Guatemala. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, As one observer wrote, When you retained John Clements as your PR man, it was like renting a war machine. Clements's hastily written study predictably came up with a panorama of scheming Guatemalan communists plotting to take over a corrupt administration run by a crypto-Marxist president, Arbenz. The document's account of supposed Soviet intrusion in the small nation was full of unsubstantiated facts, exaggerations, scurrilous descriptions, and bizarre historical theories. Much of its profuse detail and innuendo apparently came from disgruntled Guatemalan exiles as well as United Fruit Company flax. United Fruit paid Clements $35,000 for his 235-page study. Authorship was anonymous. Clemens had it memographed in official-looking binders in June 1952 and then sent it to members of the U.S. Congress as well as his list of 800 decision-makers. Some of the defamatory research later found its way into the State Department's White Paper of Guatemala issued in 1954 into speeches at the United Nations and other official releases. On the ground in Guatemala, the expansion of democracy during the Arevalo and Arbenz years led to a flourishing of indigenous organizing and political leadership. This movement had been building itself for decades prior to the fall of Ubico and thus remained both independent of and empowered by the October Revolution. Utilizing a diversity of tactics, militant and legalistic, indigenous organizers responded to petitions, settled local disputes, provided legal advice, and answered popular demands with action. This independent community power existed parallel to formal authority, retaining autonomy from the planter system and government officials. In 1950, indigenous activist José Ángel Ico, now ill with stomach cancer, spent his final months campaigning for Arbenz. Planters viciously opposed the efforts of Ico and other indigenous leaders, shutting down bus and transportation services on Election Day and utilizing harassment and bribery to convince indigenous people to vote against Arbenz. Eco died in November of 1950, and never lived to see Arbenz take power, but Eco's influence on Guatemalan politics lived on. Grandin writes, 
Ego's power came from his ability to tack between Kekchi and Ladino worlds, to mobilize strikes and land invasions, while at the same time enlisting the support of Ladino reformers, filling property claims, and litigating in local courts. Both in the 1920s and then again in the 1940s, provincial elites rightly viewed Ico's creation of an alternative network of rural power as a menace, one that drew from the same sources of community authority as the state, but was used to fight, not enforce, the privileges of Ladino and foreign elites. Grandin later continues, Eco, while exceptional, was not unique. The social transformations brought by the coffee state provided fertile ground for similar, prominent, politically consequential indigenous leaders, such as Tomas Deku, reportedly a follower of Eco, and Rabinal, an Archimayan town dominated by a minority Ladino population. Deku, like Eco, established a Comunidad Agraria, affiliated with the National Labor Federation, and organized Rabinal's indigenous population into the Communist Party. Like Eco, Teku and his followers worked through existing networks of power. In 1949, we monopolized everything, remembered one Archie participant. We organized Indians. We did everything, like a spider, beginning in the center and then moving outward. On May 1st, 1949, we paraded with a thousand men under the flag with the hammer and sickle. Viva la revolución, we shouted. Arriba, el 20 de octubre! If American journalists had seriously investigated the specter of communism in Latin America, they would have found very little in the policies and practices of the Arevalo and Arbenz governments. This isn't to say that communists had no influence, but as the prior excerpt suggests, the communist influence in Guatemala was not born of Moscow plots and intrigue, but local aspirations for democratic expansion. The Communist Party of Guatemala had first been founded in the 1920s, but was subsequently destroyed in the early years of the Ubico dictatorship. Even in the early years of Arevalo, the October Revolution used force to prevent the formation of a new Communist Party. But by 1949, students and teachers met in secret to found the Partido Guatemalteco de Trabajo, the Guatemalan Workers' Party. Grandin writes, According to anti-communist writers and U.S. officials, the young men who formed the PGT were the best the October Revolution had to offer. The deputy chief of the U.S. Embassy remembered that non-communist politicians were a group of bums of first order, lazy, ambitious, they wanted money, were palace hangers-on. Those who could work, had a sense of direction, ideas, knew where they wanted to go, were Fortuny and his PGT friends. This was the tragedy. The only people who were committed to hard work were those who were, by definition, our worst enemies. Enemies and allies alike described the PGT as respectful of democratic norms and in touch with their political base, rejecting caudillo paternalism that characterized the performance of many Guatemalan politicians. This melded well with Arbenz's political style. Grandin continues, in 1950, for instance, at the Alta Verapaz campaign rally, Arbenz told Kekchi listeners that he had been advised not to bother to speak to them, since they would vote as they were told. He ended his remarks by saying that he had faith that you will go to your villages and tell them that there are men who come not only to ask for your votes, 
but who come because they care about your problems, whether you vote for me or not. By rejecting the patronage and Banana Republic politics that had dominated the region for decades, both the PGT and Arbenz found themselves as political kindred spirits, despite having very different long-term political visions. The PGT grew from less than 100 members in 1950 to 5,000 in 1954. Despite their small numbers, the party was immensely influential due to its style and seriousness about representing the popular aspirations of the working class and peasant majority. Arbenz recognized the competence and political acumen of the party, choosing to legalize it in recognition of its support for reform. While the party lacked formal control of most labor unions and only had four seats in Congress at its height, they were among the most effective activists and incorruptible labor inspectors of the revolution. Communist parties played a number of roles throughout the 20th century. Initially formed after the Bolsheviks took power in Russia, capital C communists of Europe traced their roots to the World War I split of social democratic parties into pro-war and anti-war factions. By the 1930s, Many of these parties aligned themselves with the Communist International, which was increasingly bound to political lines emanating from Moscow. Still, communists were often the most organized and ardent defenders of oppressed peoples. Communists were among the earliest and most reliable allies of black Americans in the Jim Crow era. Communists made up the bulk of foreign volunteers fighting fascists in the Spanish Civil War. Before long, Local communists were at the forefront of liberation and freedom struggles throughout Asia, Africa, and the Americas. And even before Stalin had died, communist parties often acted independently, with little to no input, support, or direction from the Soviet Union. In Guatemala, the largely Ladino and middle-class PGT pressed forward in the tradition of eco and indigenous labor leaders utilizing both militancy and formal political process in advance of their goals. Many joined labor unions and kept their communist affiliations a secret, but this was a practical decision from a party that had been illegal and persecuted during its entire existence. Even prior to legalization, communists engaged in solid relationship building, listening and acting on the stated needs of rank-and-file workers. It was this effective relationship building intellectual rigor, and hard work that compelled Arbenz to seek the advice of the PGT leadership. Grandin writes, José Manuel Fortuny, founder of the PGT, recounts that prior to his electoral campaign, Arbenz began to invite the young communists to his home, where he would question them on their platform and ideas. Fortuny explained to Arbenz that Latin America was semi-colonial and that the principal task was to do away with all the backward relations of production or legacies of feudalism or colonialism. Guatemala needed a profound change in its agrarian structure, one that would distribute uncultivated land to peasants and increase their consumptive capacity. What is historically important is that the PGT's vision of development was cohesive and coherent in comparison with those of other Guatemalan political parties. The other parties were always twisting themselves up with phraseologies, says Fortuny. They would go on and on about liberty, justice, and democracy, but it was all in the abstract. In the end, all of this opaque rhetoric said nothing. 
to the practical Arbenz, who soon asked Fortuny to write his campaign speeches. It was the practicality of Marxism, its claim to put social enfranchisement within reach, and its not-distant theoretical utopianism that accounts for its appeal among many of Guatemala's political elite. Nowhere was the PGT's influence more clear than the 1952 agrarian reform law, the signature political achievement of the October Revolution. Using the PGT's vision of extending democracy into rural communities by granting cheap access to land and, thus, self-sufficiency, the land reform law further weakened the tight control over labor that planters once wielded. The law created an administration to oversee enforcement of the law and ensure that planters were unable to exploit loopholes or take advantage of ignorance among the workers. As rural workers became landowners, they would not only enjoy the fruits of their labor and autonomy, but have the freedom to become consumers in a developing economy. The rise in wages and improved working conditions would also force planters to invest in new equipment and improve efficiency in order to make a profit despite the rise in labor costs. In many ways, this was a moderate law that demonstrated how backwards and futile the planter class had kept Guatemala. But being communists, the PGT made sure to implement new structures for workers to express their self-determination, Grandin writes. The centerpiece of the PGT's vision of democratic modernization was the agrarian committees, Comites Agrarios Locales, or CALs. By bypassing institutions controlled by planter interests, such as municipal governments, the Congress, or the courts, CALs turned rural relations of domination and deference upside down. They received the initial land claims by peasants and unions, reviewed the documentation, conducted a survey, and passed their recommendations on to the department-level Comites Agrarios Departamentales, or CADs, which ruled on the expropriation. For their part, planters had the right to appeal decisions first to the National Oversight Board and then to the President, defined in the legislation as the final arbiter of all disputes. The composition of the CALs likewise shifted the balance of power in the countryside. CALs had five members, of which peasant unions appointed three, and the municipality and departmental governor named the remaining two. The land reform law was enthusiastically supported by the indigenous majority, but also enjoyed significant support from Ladinos, some for idealistic reasons, others due to their resentment towards large wealthy landowners. Practically overnight, and for the first time in Guatemalan history, local labor leaders were now wielding immense political power in their communities. This prompted fierce condemnation from planters and the Catholic Church, who increased their efforts to scuttle the law through a media campaign of disinformation. As is often the case, newspapers, printing presses, and radio stations were typically owned by the wealthy, who used their vast resources to condemn the law and the government. Grandin writes, They told peasants that they would forfeit their union membership if they received land, that they would no longer receive food rations or material to repair houses if they joined a union, and that the government was going to take away their wives and children. Castillo Flores also noted attempts to divide the rural population, such as offers of better salaries for loyal workers, and rumors that land granted by the reform would be invaded by free peasants. Routine physical and verbal violence likewise diluted the effectiveness of local political democracy, 
wearing activists down with instant low-intensity harassment. Following Arbenz's election and Eco's death in 1950, for example, assault and taunts against peasant leaders grew worse. Manuela Cal, who had her ribs broken by a drunk celebrating Eco's death, remembers Ladinos throwing rocks through her windows. Alfredo complained that Ladinos ridiculed his attempt to organize adult literacy workshops, saying that the only way Indians could learn Spanish is if you split their skulls with an axe and pour it in. In 1953, a Ladino peasant shot and murdered his politically active Kekchi neighbor with a shotgun. This was a case of a poor Ladino who should have otherwise supported the agrarian reform law, but instead adopted a fascistic outlook in response to the social advance of his indigenous neighbor. Catholic priests gave sermon demanding his release at Mass. Anti-communists who otherwise would not have given the poor peasant a moment of thought were now celebrating the murderer as a hero. His lawyer was a planter who defended him pro bono and accused the murdered Kekchi of drunkenness, aggression, and bad temper, an illegal strategy based on racist stereotypes. Newspapers ran stories supporting the argument that the murder was a case of self-defense, reminiscent of the modern American media storm regarding the murder of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman. For the time being, however, the government and its law was still standing, if frustrated by the relentless and increasingly violent right-wing opposition. Ultimately, the government was poised to survive, and the law, given enough time, would have been a success. Guatemalan anti-communists relentlessly opposed the law, but their efforts alone were insufficient to topple the government. Even as former supporters of the 1944 revolution turned against it, Arbenz remained popular among the majority of Guatemalans. The CIA and foreign capital interests had thus far failed to foster regime change, but the passage of the agrarian reform law would prompt the United States to take a more proactive line in supporting the Guatemalan anti-communists in their effort to roll back the gains of the revolution. While American histories of the Guatemalan coup slightly overemphasized the role of the United Fruit Company in toppling Arbenz, the company would no doubt play a key role in the escalation of war against the Arbenz government, the PGT, and the growing mass movement of indigenous labor organizers. The agrarian reform law didn't seize land at random. It was carefully crafted to expropriate unproductive land standing idle. The owners were compensated according to market value and resold to landless peasants at a steep discount. United Fruit was the largest single landowner in all of Guatemala, owning 550,000 acres total. In 1953, the government claimed 2,942 acres of uncultivated land and offered $627,572 in compensation. The government used United Fruit's officially declared tax value to come up with the figure. Of course, United Fruit had lied on its tax filings. In a stunning act of capital entitlement, United Fruit enlisted the U.S. State Department to act on its behalf and claim the real value of the land at $15,854,849. Guatemala was offering $2.99 per acre. United Fruit had originally paid $1.48 per acre. Now the State Department was demanding $75 per acre. At United Fruit's behest, a series of meetings were held in Washington, and a decision was made. Arbenz had to go.
Thanks so much for listening to The Movements, a podcast history of the masses. This podcast is a one Guatemalan operation. If you'd like to pay me for my labor, please support the podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash movementspod. And if you've ever eaten a Chiquita banana, you are legally obligated to sign up at at least $1 a month as reparations. I don't make the rules. Thanks so much, and please enjoy the rest of the show. The Truman administration had already endorsed a plot to topple the Guatemalan government, working in direct coordination with Nicaraguan, Venezuelan, and Dominican dictators Anastasio Somoza, Marcos Perez Jimenez, and Rafael Trujillo. The plot to funnel weapons and cash into Guatemala was abruptly canceled at the last minute at the urging of Secretary of State Dean Acheson. However, incoming President Eisenhower revived the idea upon taking office, and gave approval for a series of actions that would ultimately end Guatemalan democracy. The CIA, in coordination with United Fruit, provided arms and money to right-wing officers who proceeded to seize a provincial capital, holding it for 17 hours before being crushed. The initial revolt failed to spread as planned uprisings fizzled, but the CIA was undeterred. Another former FDR advisor, and leader of the New York Liberal Party, Adolf Burl, contacted the Eisenhower administration with his own recommendation. The prominent liberal was not even aware of United Fruit's efforts to topple Arbenz, but he too had financial interests in Guatemala. He recommended that the administration utilize U.S. ambassadors in Central American countries to act in tandem to coordinate clandestine operations in the region. The Guatemalans sensed that the situation was deteriorating and aggressively sought a peaceful settlement to the dispute. The United States met with the Guatemalan ambassador on numerous occasions, but repeatedly stated that no settlement was possible until the PGT was outlawed and expelled from all government positions. By August 1953, Eisenhower approved an ambitious, tightly controlled CIA operation by the name of Operation PB Success. The planners of the operation recognized the major impediment to their efforts. Right-wing military officers had already failed on numerous occasions to topple both Arevalo and Arbenz. Even if they identified reliable, competent partners in the Guatemalan army, the majority of commanders and top generals were loyal. Moreover, Arbenz was still popular. The focus, it was determined, was to demoralize and undermine both the army and Arbenz's popular base. It didn't matter that there weren't enough right-wing exiles to mount a serious military invasion or that Arbenz was popular. By creating the illusion that Arbenz was on the precipice, the military would abandon him to save themselves. Force would be limited to mostly paramilitary operations, as involving regular armed forces of the United States would potentially rally public opinion against the effort. Instead, the CIA contracted civilian pilots, Americans flying bombing missions in unmarked planes based in Nicaragua. The airbase also provided weapons training to over 150 anti-communists, consisting of Guatemalans and foreign right-wing mercenaries. Radio stations equipped with both broadcast and signal jamming equipment were established in Honduras, Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, and even within Guatemala itself. Taking a page from Adolf Burl's proposal, U.S. embassies and ambassadors were directly involved in the plot. 
with one of the radio stations housed in the U.S. Embassy inside Guatemala City. To sneak in over 30 aircraft for the operation, an American aircraft company was persuaded to set up a charitable foundation in Miami under the guise of a medical institute. The right-wing owner donated the aircraft as a tax-deductible donation to the institute, which were then sold to private buyers. The buyers were, of course, CIA front companies. At this point, the CIA needed a leader for the small invasion force. Little combat experience was required, as most of the operation was psychological. Air support would do most of the fighting, so military capability was not of the highest importance. Several vied for the job that ultimately fell upon Castillo Armas, Schlesinger and Kinzerwright. Armas seemed a natural, if less than ideal, choice. He had no strong ideology beyond simple nationalism and anti-communism, but he had that good Indian look about him. He looked like an Indian, which was great for the people, Howard Hunt recalled. He had also a vaguely heroic reputation among the exiles, and was considered malleable as far as the CIA and United Fruit were concerned. Fred Sherwood, who led Armas's air force, added, He didn't know what he was doing. He was in way over his head. Despite internal division and politicking among the Guatemalan right wing, Armas announced his National Liberation Movement in December of 1953, an organization that would eventually form the surveillance and terror networks of the Guatemalan Civil War. The United States denied any link to the movement while continuing to exert diplomatic pressure on Guatemala. At a meeting of the Organization of American States in March of 1954, the U.S. aggressively pushed through a resolution condemning Guatemala, threatening to withhold aid from member nations hesitant to condemn a democratic government. The dictatorship supported the resolution with little condition. Democracies were fearful of the U.S.'s flagrant and aggressive actions and largely acquiesced for fear of being next on the hit list. The U.S. paid a political price as its prestige dropped dramatically throughout Latin America as a result of the controversy. Despite great applause in support of Guatemala at the OAS, Guatemala was the sole vote against the resolution. Mexico and Argentina abstained. U.S. soft power and the threat of hard power won the day. Guatemalan anti-communists were not merely stooges of the Americans, however. Landlords and anti-communist clergy resisted land seizures in the countryside of their own independent initiative, carrying on the colonial tradition of brutal feudal rule in the plantations. The government protected indigenous labor to the best of their legal abilities, but political murder and violence against campesinos intensified with the implementation of agrarian reform. In March of 1953, 200 anti-communist militants attacked and occupied the provincial capital of Salama. The Guatemalan army retook the city within 24 hours and arrested the leaders. The subsequent trial revealed connections to the United Fruit Company. The premature attack set back the counter-revolutionary coalition, as allies of Castillo Armas were further implicated in the plot. Cordova Serna, the leader of Guatemala's most influential anti-communist organization, fled the country to avoid prosecution. The legal crackdown deprived Armas of a political asset within Guatemala, 
but the void was quickly filled by throngs of anti-communist university students. Many were former supporters of the October Revolution, but as anti-communist middle-class Ladinos, they turned against Arevalo and Arbenz. Several anti-communist groups were founded by right-wing students at San Marcos University. The most influential groups were contacted by the CIA, who engaged in joint disinformation and destabilization efforts, including a harassment campaign and anonymous death threats against suspected communist sympathizers. You'll learn more about the collaboration between anti-communist student groups and the CIA in Part 3 of this series. Fearing an inevitable invasion, surrounded by well-armed enemies backed by the U.S., and with no other country willing to supply the Guatemalan military, Arbenz was forced to purchase defensive weaponry from Czechoslovakia, an ally of the Soviet Union. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, It was a shipment of weapons, rifles, ammunition, anti-tank mines, and artillery pieces. The United States had refused to sell any weapons to Guatemala since 1948. President Arevalo thereafter tried to buy arms from Denmark, but the transaction was upset. The Americans also used diplomatic pressure to stop arms deals with Mexico, Cuba, Argentina, and Switzerland during the Arbenz administration. They could not even buy low-caliber ammo for the hunting and fishing club, a favored gathering place for well-to-do sportsmen. The single arms shipment was relatively modest, but the discovery of the purchase was enough for the U.S. government to claim that Arbenz was preparing to invade his neighbors. Later, journalist Keith Monroe of Harper's Magazine claimed that the U.S. believed Arbenz was preparing to arm a communist militia to invade Nicaragua and Honduras, offering no proof. In reality, diplomatic cables show that U.S. Ambassador John Purifoy knew that the arms were intended solely for defense by the regular army alone. On May 20th, a CIA operation attempted to destroy the arms cache, then in transit via railway. They failed to destroy the train, but succeeded in killing one Guatemalan soldier and wounding three others. The CIA was also working its connections to American newspapers, like Edward Bernays before them. New York Times journalist Sidney Grusin was an experienced correspondent who had reported critically on the Arbenz government. He'd even been expelled briefly, until Ambassador Purifoy's protests convinced the Guatemalans to allow his return. However, Grusin made the error of reporting that Guatemalans, angry at the attack on the military train carrying weapons, were rallying behind the president in response to foreign aggression. This wasn't a stretch, and Grusin attributed this not to support for communism or anti-Americanism, but simple nationalism. CIA Director Alan Dulles, acting on behalf of the director of Operation PB Success, set up a dinner with the business manager of the Times, Schlesinger and Kinzer write. Dulles quietly told Adler that he and his brother, the Secretary of State, had confidential information which caused them to be concerned about the political reliability of Grusin and his then-wife, reporter Flora Lewis. Dulles backed up his charge only by noting that Grusin traveled on a British passport issued in Warsaw, that his wife also made trips on that passport, and that Grusin was suspected of liberal leanings. Therefore, the CIA director suggested, Grusin should not be assigned such a delicate story as the developing conflict in Guatemala. 
Adler passed the tip up to Times publisher Arthur Hay Sulzberger, ordered Grusin to stay put at his Mexico City bureau on the spurious ground that there might be an unspecified Mexican angle to the impending coup in Guatemala. Grusin was about to launch an investigation of the Castillo Armas invasion force when he was grounded. By June, Guatemala was rife with rumors and fear. On June 8th, Arbenz received congressional approval to suspend the Constitution for 30 days due to the impending invasion. Despite the fact that this was legal and written into the Constitution, this was seized upon by the Americans. Ambassador Purifoy cabled Dulles with claims of a reign of terror. On June 15th, Dulles repeated the phrase to reporters, No evidence of widespread murders or torture has ever been found. The disinformation and propaganda campaign proved to be some of the most effective tools of the CIA and its enablers in the media. In January of 1954, the Guatemalan government published detailed documents and correspondences proving direct collusion between Guatemalan and Latin American anti-communists and the Central Intelligence Agency, Schlesinger and Kinzer write. On January 29, 1954, Guatemala's newspapers published copies of correspondence signed by Castillo Armas, Idigaras, and the Somosas under banner headlines. The reports revealed that President Somoza was providing staging and training bases for Castillo Armas's troops and organizing an invasion of Guatemala with the assistance of El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and the Government of the North. In the United States, the operation's exposure caused scarcely a ripple of comment. The State Department labeled the charges of a U.S. role ridiculous and untrue, and said it would not comment further on Guatemala's accusations because it did not wish to give them a dignity they did not deserve. A spokesman added ingenuously, It is the policy of the United States not to intervene in the internal affairs of other nations. Time magazine typified the U.S. media response to the revelations, conceding that conspiracies did exist against Arbenz, but calling this particular one fantastic and completely fanciful. The real plot in the situation was less of a plot than a scenario, a sort of Reichstag fire in reverse, masterminded in Moscow and designed to divert attention from Guatemala as the Western Hemisphere's red problem child. Nick Cullithers adds, Instead of rallying support for his regime, his January allegations only intensified public anxiety and raised suspicions that he was creating a pretext for seizing dictatorial powers. While Guatemalan newspapers printed the documents, the majority of Guatemalans were illiterate and more likely to receive their news from the radio. David Atlee Phillips, a former stage actor turned CIA spy, was put in charge of the CIA's propaganda radio broadcasts. In the weeks prior to the invasion, the CIA took out advertisements in Guatemalan newspapers promoting the new station, promising performances from the biggest stars of Latin America, including singers and comedians. Upon its launch on May 1st, the station broadcast recordings of these acts and admitted to the audience that they'd been deceived for a great cause. From that point on, CIA propaganda was transmitted directly to every Guatemalan with a shortwave radio. They claimed that Arbenz was about to disarm the military and raise a peasant army. 
The radio urged Guatemalans to support the rebels, who were supposedly taking up arms throughout the entire country. The CIA even staged fake supply drops within eyesight of civilians to create the impression that the rebels were close by, moving unseen and silently to their strategic goals. On June 4th, a retired Guatemalan Air Force colonel defected to the CIA, who asked Colonel Azurdia to tape propaganda messages aimed at the Guatemalan Air Force. The colonel refused, but was offered a bottle of scotch to continue the informal conversation. Upon relaxing, the agent asked the colonel to describe what he would say if he were to hypothetically send a message to the Air Force. Schlesinger and Kinzer quote a former CIA agent involved in the operation. Pepe removed the tape recorder they had hidden in the sofa cushions. It was only an hour's work to cut up the tape, then splash together again, so that only the voice of the pilot, in what appeared to be a voluntary exhortation, remained in an impassioned request to his flying friends to join the winners. The tape was broadcast the next morning. Arbenz ordered his air force to be grounded. The mighty Guatemalan Air Force, of only six out-of-date training aircraft, dating to before 1936. In Honduras, Castillo Armas met for the first time his invasion force of Guatemalan exiles, American soldiers of fortune, and a mixed crew of Central Americans, in the words of Schlesinger and Kinzer. His plan was to cross over the border and take the town of Zacapa, strategically located at a railway junction connecting Guatemala City, Puerto Barrios, and El Salvador then push forward to take Puerto Barrios itself. However, it became clear that no uprisings had occurred in Guatemala, despite the radio broadcasts. Armas's grand military campaign wouldn't be everything he imagined, but the CIA's plan didn't necessarily require military success in order to succeed. On June 18th, the invaders crossed the border, Armas was instructed to advance no further than six miles, avoid combat, and await further instructions. The CIA Air Force conducted a bombing raid of sorts on Puerto Barrios. Two American pilots flew a Cessna and dropped a dynamite stick and a grenade onto a fuel tank, causing an explosion. Elsewhere, another American was sent to strafe the city of Coban, but ran out of fuel on his return flight, crash landing just barely on the Mexican side of the Guatemalan border. Two additional CIA planes were damaged beyond repair. The opening round of the invasion was something of a bust. The Hanna-Barbera antics of the CIA Air Force failed to cause any serious blow to Guatemalan morale. By June 20th, the Guatemalan army had easily kept Armas at bay and even intercepted a weapons supply shipment intended for the mercenaries. The CIA was beginning to feel nervous. On June 21st, Armas made a public appearance at Esquipulas, drawing a considerable amount of media attention and proclaiming impending triumph. But despite his control over the city of the famed Black Christ, none of his strategic goals had been achieved. The CIA appealed for replacement aircraft, but doubt was hampering their efforts. They initiated a contingency plan to drop bombs on an empty Honduran airstrip and claim a hostile attack by the mighty Guatemalan Air Force. Honduran generals were eager to agree to the plan, but failure to coordinate the lie meant they were each naming different locations when filing reports and providing media statements. 
Further investigation found that the craters were clearly created by test bombs filled with water rather than explosive material. Meanwhile, air raids continued with the remaining CIA aircraft. In one incident, an American pilot was given instructions to bomb a government radio station, but warned against hitting a nearby evangelical radio station where American missionaries were known to work. Schlesinger and Kinzer described the absurdity of the situation. Be careful, Wade was warned. You can tell the difference because the Arban station is all concrete and the mission has a red tile roof. The pilot returned from his mission, claiming success. Are you sure you hit the right place? He was asked. Absolutely, he replied. You should have seen them red tiles flying. No army units had abandoned Arbenz at this point. However, Dulles was now sitting with Eisenhower, explaining that no resupply of fresh aircraft meant the operation had 0% chance of success. If the U.S. was caught sending aircraft to assist Armas's mercenaries, there would be a major diplomatic incident. Eisenhower asked Dulles, what were their chances of success if the aircraft was provided? Dulles responded 20%. Eisenhower granted the request. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, Unaware of Eisenhower's reaffirmed commitment to his overthrow, Arbenz continued to press for a diplomatic solution. He felt secure enough to reject advice he was receiving, to call for a mass rally of supporters in the capital, a move some historians later speculated might have saved his presidency. Instead, he asked President Oscar Osorio of El Salvador, a military dictator who was most anxious for his demise, to help bring an end to the fighting by mediating. Arbenz did not grasp the extent to which the Americans and the Hondurans and other neighbors had become allies, pledged to his destruction. On June 21st and 22nd, Guatemala appealed to the UN, imploring the world to find a negotiated settlement. The UN General Assembly urgently wanted to address the crisis without delay, but U.S. Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge was president of the Council for the month of June. The United States delayed the UN for eight days after the invasion had begun. Thanks to U.S. lobbying efforts, the Security Council voted against launching an investigation. On June 23rd, the new planes arrived, and the CIA launched a furious bombing campaign, with a precision not previously seen. They hit a military barracks and the city of Chiquimulas, setting fire to the latter. Seventeen Guatemalan soldiers were killed with dozens wounded. For days, the CIA hit towns, military targets, ammo dumps, and oil reserves. In one night raid, the U.S. Embassy set up speakers and blasted the sound of explosions to further create the feeling of chaos. Ultimately, neither the bombings nor the invasion of Castillo Armas proved the decisive factors in toppling Arbenz. By most measures, the government was winning on the battlefield. But rumors of an imminent invasion by the United States military paralyzed the Guatemalan officer corps with fear. On June 23rd, a PGT official reported that Guatemalan soldiers in Zacapa were cowering in fear and confusion. PGT leader Manuel Fortuny met with Arbenz on June 25th, warning of an imminent military collapse. Arbenz was skeptical. Armas had failed to achieve any real combat victories. Aside from the conservative Esquipulas, the CIA invasion force failed to establish a presence in any other city, town, or strategic location. According to Nick Cullithers, Arbenz met with a trusted officer who reported that his fellow officers, 
Think that the Americans are threatening Guatemala just because of you and your communist friends. If you don't resign, the army will march on the capital to depose you. That same day, Arbenz received word that the garrison at Chiquimulas had surrendered to Armas without a fight. Morale was beginning to collapse, though the CIA remained largely unaware of how close they were to victory. Cullithers writes, Agency stations in Guatemala City never learned what happened at Zacapa. For agency observers in Miami and Washington, what happened in the next few days seemed curious and magical. Just as the entire operation seemed beyond saving, the Guatemalan government suddenly, inexplicably collapsed. The agency never found out why. After the conclusion of PB success, no one asked the captured Guatemalan officers what happened in the regime's final days. Instead, an agency legend developed, promoted by Bissell and other officials close to the operation, that Arbenz lost his nerve as a result of the psychological pressure of air attacks and radio propaganda. In fact, Arbenz was deposed in a military coup, and neither the radio nor the air attacks had much to do with it. At this late critical stage, the CIA plot against Arbenz could have been defeated, this was not the first coup attempt that the revolution had faced down. Cullithers writes that unnamed CIA officials feared that if the Guatemalan army had attacked Armas head-on, the invasion would have easily collapsed. Diplomatic efforts by Foreign Minister Torriello threatened to impose a ceasefire. Even if the military was paralyzed by fear and confusion, many of Arbenz's most ardent supporters still had fight left in them including the 90,000 members of Guatemala's Labor Confederation, not to mention rural campesinos. Many demanded arms, as they had received previously during the 1949 coup crisis. Schlesinger and Kinzer write. One was a 25-year-old Argentine doctor named Ernesto Che Guevara. Guevara had originally come to Guatemala to study the role of medical care under Arbenz's regime. When the air raids began, he volunteered to go to the front but the Guatemalan army was only using full-time soldiers, not civilians. He then tried unsuccessfully to organize units to guard the capital. In the final hours, he helped move a cache of arms to a putative resistance brigade. After Arbenz's fall, he thought the former president should retreat to the mountains with a band of armed workers and peasants and fight on indefinitely. It was Guatemala, wrote Guevara's first wife, Hilda Gadea, which finally convinced him of the necessity for armed struggle and for taking the initiative against imperialism. By the time he left, he was sure of this. CIA radio stations interfered with military radio signals and fabricated reports detailing mass defections and uprisings, battles that were ending in major defeats for the military, and a growing rebel army. Images of wounded soldiers further demoralized the army and the population. Certainly the army had incurred some losses and setbacks, but these were now being blown out of proportion thanks to the onslaught of propaganda broadcasts. But none of it was true, and Armas had never commanded more than 400 soldiers. The reports gained further credence as international press parroted propaganda talking points. Schlesinger and Kinzer write, the main source of inside news was the U.S. Ambassador John Purifoy. He dropped bits of information, confided private thoughts to correspondents, and drank with reporters at the American Club downtown in the midst of the aerial bombardment. 
All were struck by his courage. None realized that he knew precisely when the raids were coming and where the bombs and bullets were expected to hit. On June 25th, Arbenz met with Colonel Diaz and his contacts in the Labor Confederation. He ordered Diaz to open military armories for civilian procurement. Schlesinger and Kinzerite. The next day, Colonel Diaz reported to his leader that he had tried to turn the weapons over to civilians, but I did not have the obedience of the chiefs of the troops. That stark statement shook Arbenz deeply. Without the loyalty of his army, and without any other armed force to defend him, the end was near. Cullithers adds that labor militants had lost their nerve, writing, Union members had previously fought for the government alongside the army, but the prospect of fighting both the army and Castillo Armas was too daunting. Only a handful showed up to ask for arms, but there were none available. Diaz reneged on his promise. He was closeted with Sanchez, Monzon, and other military leaders plotting to seize power for themselves. Even as late as June 26, Castillo Armas struggled to seize the initiative, with his units frantically radioing for air support as they encountered resistance from police and armed rural peasants. On June 27th, radio broadcasts claimed that Armas was leading two columns on Guatemala City. In reality, the mercenaries were retreating from Chiquimulas. The army had only suffered 15 deaths and 25 wounded, but Arbenz had lost control. Arbenz asked to negotiate terms of his resignation. Ambassador Purifoy was elated and set up a meeting with Colonel Diaz. Among many topics of negotiation were the communists. Later that day, Guatemalan military police were rounding up communists throughout the capital. Arbenz had lost power. At 9.15 that evening, Arbenz gave his final address, where he laid out the situation and offered his hope that his resignation would allow Colonel Diaz to defeat the invasion force of Castillo Armas. For 15 days, a cruel war against Guatemala has been underway. In whose name have they carried out these barbaric acts? What is their banner? We know very well. They have used the pretext of anti-communism. The truth is very different. The truth is to be found in the financial interests of the fruit company and other U.S. monopolies which fear that the example of Guatemala would be followed by other Latin countries. I have made a sad and cruel judgment. I have decided to step down and place the nation's executive power in the name of my friend, Colonel Carlos Enrique Diaz. I was elected by a majority of the people of Guatemala. The enemy who commands the bands of foreign mercenaries recruited by Castillo Armas is not only weak, but completely cowardly. We have seen this in the few combat encounters we have had. I believe that our armed forces will not have great difficulty in defeating him and expelling him from the country. I have not violated my faith and democratic liberties in the independence of Guatemala and in all the good which is in the future of humanity. One day the obscured forces which today oppress the backward and colonial world will be defeated. I say goodbye to you, my friends, with bitterness and pain, but remaining firm in my convictions. Remember how much it has cost. 
Ten years of struggle, of tears, of sacrifices, and of democratic victories. A government different from mine, but always inspired by our October Revolution, is preferable to twenty years of fascist bloody tyranny under the rule of the bands which Castillo Armas has brought into the country. Many people will believe that I am making a mistake. Only history will decide. I want the popular conquests of the October Revolution to be maintained, and I want peace to be re-established after the invaders have been expelled from the country, and I have faith in the success of the government being organized by Colonel Carlos Enrique Diaz. With the satisfaction of one who believes he has done his duty, with faith in the future, I say to you, by midnight, the former president walked into the Mexican embassy. Despite the optimistic tone of that final address, the ten years of spring were over. Latin American historians, political theorists, and leftists have debated the fall of the Arbenz government for years. The PGT criticized the president for ceding power to Colonel Diaz, and for his naive belief in diplomacy in the face of American imperialism. Many leftist intellectuals agreed with Guevara and condemned Arbenz for not launching a guerrilla war. But Schlesinger and Kinzer quote Luis Cardoza y Aragón's assessment of the man, an unlikely candidate for such an ambitious plan. What kind of a man is President Arbenz? A professional soldier who rose from the petty bourgeoisie to become a large landowner, a sour man who is not yet ripened, filled with good intentions, but in politics it is acts that count. Jacobo Arbenz allowed the opportunity of fulfilling a great historical obligation to slip through his fingers. While a guerrilla war in 1954 may not have been feasible, at least under the conditions that existed at the time, it would have been within Arbenz's power to create a permanent revolutionary militia, the Guatemalan Revolution was saved by armed workers during the 1949 crisis, just as the Spanish Republic was saved by armed workers during the July 1936 coup attempt that preceded the Spanish Civil War. The main threat to Guatemalan democracy was not Moscow. It was the anti-communist political order of the Western Hemisphere, homegrown and supported from abroad. Ideological anti-communism does not mean people or organizations who are not communists. In fact, anti-communist violence and subversion rarely discriminated between communists and non-communists and view the expansion of democratic rights and power as foreign and dangerous. The government's over-reliance on legalistic police action and limited use of repression left the whole democratic movement, communist and non-communist alike, vulnerable. Non-communists were already the majority of the Arbencista coalition, and good-faith collaboration between the PGT and Arben's government in building rural democracy demonstrated the Guatemalan communists were committed to legalism and multi-party politics. Given the incompetence and disorganization of the Guatemalan anti-communists, it might not have required much more militancy and bureaucratic purging to protect constitutionalism and rural democracy. Given the political climate in Guatemala and abroad, Arbenz would have been justified in calling for mass demonstrations 
in distributing arms to his supporters. The creation of a permanent workers and campesinos militia may have prompted a long-term shadow war against Guatemala, or even a U.S.-backed invasion. But by leaving the revolution vulnerable to the international anti-communist coalition, Arbenz left his entire coalition at the mercy of the violent counter-revolution. This harsh lesson would influence the decision of future revolutionaries, including that of the Cubans, who would face a similar counter-revolutionary coalition of domestic political actors backed by anti-communists in the United States, Dominican Republic, Honduras, and other Latin American republics. The Cuban revolutionaries would successfully defend their revolution from a similar CIA plot during the Bay of Pigs invasion of 1961. In the immediate aftermath of Arbenz's resignation, his successor, Colonel Diaz, attempted to make everyone happy by approving a violent anti-communist purge while simultaneously declaring his commitment to the October Revolution. Diaz had negotiated a deal with Ambassador Purifoy under the condition that Castillo Armas not be allowed to take power. The CIA responded by telling the colonel, without ambiguity, that he was no longer the American choice for president. The shocked colonel stated that he'd received a promise from the ambassador, to which the CIA replied, Well, colonel, there is diplomacy and there is reality. Our ambassador represents diplomacy. I represent reality. The CIA shut down any possibility that the October Revolution would be continued. It kept lists of troublemakers since 1952, with titles such as Guatemalan Communist Personnel to be Disposed of During Military Operations of Calergis, the last word being the codename of Castillo Armas. It's unclear how many persons were murdered as a direct result of these early lists, but the practice of kill lists would play a major role in the mass violence and bloodshed of the Guatemalan Civil War that would last from 1960 to 1996. For now, the CIA ensured that the new government would be anti-communist first and foremost, retaining a tight authoritarian control over the indigenous population and the political system. A military junta was appointed with Castillo Armas at the top. Immediately, the gains of the October Revolution were rolled back. Over the following 18 months, land was violently taken from the poor and returned to the planters and united fruit. Arbencista laborers were rounded up and tied to posts at gunpoint. Concentration camps for political activists were established and quickly filled. Colonel Monzon would report to the press that their biggest concern was finding enough space to hold all the prisoners the army was rounding up. Feudal landlord power was restored in the countryside, as local labor arbitration councils were dismantled and local political power returned to the plantation owners. The party founded by Castillo Armas, the right-wing National Liberation Movement, or MLN, became the sole legal party during the national elections in October. Armas, the only candidate for president, was elected with 99% of the vote. The rise of the MLN would coincide with the rise of a more moderate faction of the anti-communist order, led by future President Miguel Idegras Fuentes. The anti-communist university students and alumni of San Marcos were rewarded for their part in the coup with positions of power in the counter-revolutionary government. Political platforms drafted by anti-communist university students 
would form the basis of the anti-communist constitution of 1956. By the late 1950s, Armas was dead and his party deeply unpopular. In 1958, nominally free elections were held, though the PGT remained illegal and the largely illiterate Guatemalan masses disenfranchised from voting. Miguel Ideguerras Fuentes was elected president with the support of moderate anti-communists and the United States. The MLN moved into clandestine underground insurgency, but despite the differences between the right-wing and centrist wings of the anti-communist movement, the two factions were determined Guatemala would never see a repeat of the 1944 revolution. In the weeks following Arbenz's resignation, Time magazine published the following poem, written by the wife of U.S. Ambassador John Purifoy. Sing a song of Quetzal's, pockets full of peace. The juntas in the palace, they've taken out a lease. The commies are in hiding just across the street. To the embassy of Mexico, they beat a quick retreat. And pistol-packing Purifoy looks mighty optimistic, for the land of Guatemala is no longer communistic. Among the commies hiding in embassies was Ernesto Che Guevara. Following the coup, El Che Argentino stayed in the Argentinian embassy for weeks, awaiting asylum or an exit visa out of the country. Most of the Argentines were flown back to Argentina, but Guevara declined the offer, instead requesting the right to leave the embassy and seek a visa to enter Mexico. The northern neighbor was a hotbed for political exiles, left and right. Waiting for him in Mexico were a number of Cuban friends and contacts. Among these friends of friends were members of the 26th of July movement, including a young Cuban attorney by the name of Fidel. David Atlee Phillips, the CIA agent in charge of the media disinformation campaign against Arbenz, spent the early weeks of post-coup Guatemala reviewing lists and creating new files for communist sympathizers. Phillips would soon repeat his disinformation operation against Castro and the Cuban Revolution in the lead-up to the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, though he would not repeat his success. Phillips reviewed a brief write-up on an unknown 25-year-old Argentine doctor, the same Che Argentino who sold cheap black Christ statues to tourists on the streets of Guatemala. Phillips noted Che's attempt to organize civilian resistance. Upon being asked if it would be worth starting a file on the young Ernesto, Phillips replied, I guess we'd better have a file on him. The Movements is a leftist history and politics podcast. On the next episode... The Cuban Independence Army defeats the Spanish Empire with assistance from the United States. But the Americans impose racial segregation on the majority black nation and repeatedly invade Cuba to protect capital interests. As each generation of would-be revolutionaries capitulate to American power, Cuba falls under the dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista. Che flees Guatemala for Mexico, where he joins the Cuban struggle to overthrow the dictator. Radicalized by the coup against Arbenz, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro sail to Cuba and launch a guerrilla war in the Sierra Maestra Mountains. Support the movements by donating at patreon.com slash movementspod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Movements Pod. 
Request scripts by emailing movementspod at gmail.com.